And here's the thing. I always give Kim about this, but I say I'm already against the next war. And as she had this flyer, and I, but I am. I already am because you know what? There has not been a war that's justified. And the only one, like, you know, we all kind of like the whole Revolutionary War. That's a pretty sexy story. You know, like. It is. It's my favorite. You know, I got a bunch of thugs hanging around. I like that they were ducking and rolling and hiding in trees and being little guerrilla warfare. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it started. We created guerrilla warfare. That's the only war I thought was pretty cool. But, I mean, the rest, you know, are questionable. Transmitting directly from the launch pad. Bringing blue collar to your cell tower. The rock and roll libertarian himself. It's time to blast off with Johnny Rocket. Hey, this is Blast Off with Johnny Rocket, and I'm here with my ray of truth, the one and only Miss Rayleigh Lightheart. Hello. Hi, Johnny. How you doing, Miss Ray Ray? I am having a great day. It's my daughter's birthday. Hi, Adelie. Happy 10th. Wow, they grow up quick, don't they? Yes, they do. How are you? I'm doing great. Great day today. I was out there watering plants. You are very good at tending the garden. I am not normally. This is not normal. The rock normal. garden? It's a rock garden. I, I mean, I'm serious. There's like four or five little plants out there, and I feel pretty good about it. I'm like keeping them alive. Good. It shows responsibility. You know what I mean? Nice. So one thing we keep forgetting to do is we keep actually talking about, we have all these subscribers who have been loyal, loyal Patreons Mm -hmm. and been around since Launchpad with Johnny Rocket or Johnny Rocket's Launchpad. And, you know, I think it's time for us to actually give up a couple shout outs. What do you think? Please, let's do it. All of them, actually. All right. So we want to say, Raylene and I really want to say to all of you guys who have been subscribers to our Patreon, thank you so much for doing this and helping us make the show a bigger success. And the show has turned out to be amazing. I love where the show is going, Raylene. Me too. But we couldn't have done it without these great people. So here we go, giving out our shout outs. Here we go. Randy McGlenn II, John Phillips Jr., Tom Arnold, Tajirk Nordraven, Ian Peake, Zach Spoonamore, Brent DeRitter, Emily Martin, Craig DeCosta, Ryan Patrick, Jen Janston, Joey Mullins, Brantley Spicer, Tiffany Diaz de Leon, Mark Clare, Charles Lamb, Apollo Slater, Joseph Roberts, Brian Simonson, Tom Cooper, Howard Snowden, Alex Merced, John Frostad, Jesse Pittman, Kyle Evans, William I. Wells, Jason Burt, Mark Kibler, Paul Addis, The Free Press Publications, Shane Sweeney, Denise Cox, Sidney Gilman Weasel, Craig DeCosta, Jen Hess, Kim Ruff, Sam Warner, Nick Picone, Dylan Baker, Stephanie Parker, John Odermatt, Daniel Roberts, Kelborn Kuntz, and Kalen Langman. So thank you guys so much for supporting the show and supporting the show since its inception. So thank you guys so much. Thank you guys. That is wow, some awesome. Amazing libertarians on that list. There is. Wow. And it just keeps getting bigger too. So that's like right. I said, if you guys enjoy the show, make sure you go to supportblastoff.com. Again, that's supportblastoff.com and you'll get some extra content. You get what? The after party, the all nighter, the whole nine. So I think it's going to be awesome. All right. So if you guys are digging the show, like I said, go over to supportblastoff.com. Anyway, so Raylene, are you ready for our guest? This is a cool guest. I'm excited about this guest. I am so excited. In <laughs> fact, I've been waiting to have him. I know that's take a drink. I'm, I'm so excited about having this guy. I really adore him. He's a wealth of knowledge. 
Right on. Well, here we go. D. Frank Robinson is the original Libertarian Party co-founder. He was born in Oklahoma in 1942. He attended the University of Central Oklahoma and the University of Oklahoma. He was formerly married, one son, and Mr. Robinson is best known for his activism for ballot access. Raylene, prepare for liftoff. Copy that, Johnny. Covers, tie-downs, and grounding cables. Removed as required. Communications connected. Check. Preamps in the green. Check. Cold beer. Double check. Thrusters are hot. Raylene, are you ready to rock? All systems go, Johnny. Let's blast off with D. Frank Robinson. Mr. Robinson, welcome welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Johnny. So how you doing today? Where are you at right now? I'm in uh, West Oklahoma City. Nice. I used to live out there in uh, Oklahoma. I lived out in Lawton, Fort Sill area. Oh, at one time, yes, I lived out in Lawton when I was in the Air Force. I was stationed with the attached to the Army at Post Field down at Lawton. Yep. But uh, I've been up here in Oklahoma City for the last 40-odd years. Wow. But yeah, I, I like Oklahoma. Actually, it's a pretty good state. It's actually one of my favorite states. So you've been fighting for ballot access, and this has been one of your big things. What are the challenges libertarians, other party members have faced with ballot access, and what hurdles are we still facing as of now? Well, let me just uh, use my own personal experience as an illustration of what many other candidates face uh, all across the country. Sure. In 1980, I uh, filed for office to run for uh, U.S. Congress in the 5th District here in Oklahoma, the metropolitan area of Oklahoma City. And uh, I was uh, in the first libertarian primary in the state of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I recruited a candidate to run to oppose me so that we could have a primary and get a little more media. Mm-hmm. And I wound up uh, losing the primary election to my friend that I recruited by four votes. So that was uh, a good lesson to me. But they went on, he and his wife went on and ran a very good campaign in 1980. Wow. Now, uh, bringing it up to uh, 2016, I decided that I wanted to file and run for Congress in the 3rd District of Oklahoma Mm -hmm. after the uh, new lines had been drawn, new gerrymanders. And uh, so I... uh, went out to the state election board and informed them that under Lubin B. Panish's decision of 1974, I am an indigent candidate, and therefore I could not pay their $750 filing fee. Right. Of course, they insist that in lieu of a filing fee, you must run a gauntlet by going out and beating the bushes and begging for signatures on a petition, and that takes considerable uh, physical effort. And uh, so I refused to undergo that physical trauma Mm -hmm. of circulating a petition. And they said, well, therefore, you can't run for office in Oklahoma. And furthermore, Oklahoma does not allow write-in votes, so you can't even be a write-in candidate. Goodbye, we'll see you. Wow. Wow. No write-ins. That's crazy. Well, that's another thing you can thank the U.S. Supreme Court for. Now let's go up to 2018. So I went back out to the state uh, election board this year and attempted to file for Congress again, and I got the same result that I expected. If you don't pay the $1,000 fee or submit a petition with about 7,000 signatures on it from the 3rd Congressional District of Oklahoma, which comprises roughly a third of the entire state. Holy moly. It would probably take about $14,000 to circulate 
a petition to get 7,000 signatures by being an indigent candidate and also having had a quadruple coronary bypass was in no condition to go out and circulate a petition. Right. So, therefore, uh, they refused me once again access to the ballot. And all this time, I've been, uh, not naively, but I've been relying on the fact that the Constitution of the United States does not allow any of those qualifications to be imposed on federal candidates for office by state governments. Mm -hmm. Wow. And that is the basis for the lawsuit, which I hope to eventually file against the state of Oklahoma. Wow. It does have the potential of... uh, striking down all state ballot access laws across the country. I was going to ask, because right now, state to state, the laws are very different, correct? Yes. Yeah. So some states have to, you have to either call yourself a Republican or a Democrat, and then you have to stay voting for that, right? And then other states, you in Washington, we don't have to declare what your party is, things like that. So it's, it's all a little different. So how would that work? If Would it go to Supreme Court and then they would make it uh, whether it was constitutional or not? Is that how that would be handled? Well, I have a rather radical theory about election laws, ballot access laws as censorship. First of all, where did the states acquire the constitutional authority to confiscate the private ballots of citizens in 1898? Mm-hmm. A state of Massachusetts just unilaterally declared, well, you people can't use your private ballots that you've been using to vote in this country for the last 100 years at that time. Instead, now you're going to have to use a ballot monopolized and printed and controlled by the government. Wow. Mm -hmm. It was followed by New York, and within 10 years, virtually every other state in the union had adopted what was called the Australian secret ballot, but it was an Australian ballot with numerous American additions and uh, opportunities for the uh, duopoly parties to control the ballot completely, Mm -hmm. which they eventually did. By the time we rolled over into the 20th century, they started slapping all kinds of disqualifying restrictions on any candidates other than Democrats and Republicans for access to the ballot so that the voters would have to vote, uh, vote as, as lab rats instead of as intelligent people. Wow. So basically my assertion is that there is no constitutional authority for the states uh, to pass these ballot laws. In fact, in the Constitution, it states that uh, Article 1, uh, Section 4, that the Congress has final authority over all federal elections and under the 14th Amendment that includes all the other elections. And then in Article 5, Article 1, Section 5, the Congress is the sole judge of elections, returns, and qualifications for all federal candidates. Right. Take, for example, the situation down in Florida where they have a controversial, very close U.S. Senate race. Well, they're going to angle around down there, and no doubt the state court is going to be asked to put in their two cents worth. It may even be kicked up to a federal court, and then maybe kicked up to the U.S. Supreme Court, when in fact, none of those courts have jurisdiction over federal candidates. Only the U.S. Congress, right there in the damn Constitution, right. is the one who is the judge of elections for the House and the Senate, respectively. So all these courts involve themselves in being national election commissions is essentially unconstitutional. So how long have you been working? Oh, I've been working on this now for about two years, ever since I decided to file in 2016. Wow. You've been pushing this for a while now. 
two years at least. And I mean, what's the result so far? Like how many people are behind you on this? I mean, you know, we all know that the state is, is sticky and they're evil and they're corrupt. Do you think it's going to actually fly? Do you think you're going to actually change it? I, I don't know. I hope it I hope it does. But I mean, what are the odds of it happening, sir? Well, uh, since I can't read the minds of all the federal judges, unless the case is brought before a federal judge and you get them to at least render a decision, mm-hmm. you, you're, you're not starting anything. Therefore, mm-hmm. the, the first problem is to even get in uh, and get a case before the, the federal courts. Mm-hmm. Now. They can rule on whether or not the constitutionality of the state laws applies, mm-hmm. like in my case here in Oklahoma. And they can say, well, yes, it does, and we, we can appeal. And that would go to the uh, Tenth Circuit, where our, our appeals court here for Oklahoma. And the Tenth Circuit could rule yes or no. And regardless of which way they uh, rule, it's gonna, it would be appealed to the Supreme Court. And then the Supreme Court is going to come out and trot out all their excuses for why they want to keep the duopoly in control of all the ballot access laws of all the states in the United States. Nice. And it's going to be a hard sell to explain why only Democrats and Republicans get to write all election laws in this country. Mm -hmm. So it's going to expose them. It's a great educational opportunity also for the public to actually wake up, right? Well, yes, but in order for this to become an issue, somebody has to raise it. now. I want to be somewhat gentle. I made a presentation to the Libertarian National Committee up in Colorado at one of the, at the quarterly meeting last year explaining my theory of why we should file a suit here in Oklahoma with the potential, I believe, to strike down the basic premise of all the uh, state uh, election monopoly laws that censor all the candidates. Well, they gave me a a nominally fair hearing and had a few questions, but at this time, the, the National Committee does not feel like that this is a worthwhile pursuit to undertake. And I have continued to, to lobby them to uh, reconsider. Mm-hmm. Now that this election is over, then I'm hopeful that the National Committee people will decide that, well, you know, maybe we do need to reconsider sure. whether to get out of the rut of lit- ballot list- litigation we've been in for the last 40 years, which is basically arguing the First Amendment and the 14th Amendment, and then letting the Supreme Court make up all kinds of rules and excuses for why, well, the states can do pretty much what they want in the name of keeping political stability and keeping the ballot short. And that, they have all kinds of cosmetic reasons why the voters need to be protected from themselves. Huh, right. From themselves. Right. Of course, we need help because we can't handle ourselves. I mean, these people are much better at, at ruling us than we are. Undoubtedly. <laughs> all, all of our people think that way. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Well, Mr. Robinson, you've been in the party now forever, right? Since its inception, right? So I was just curious because you've been with us for a long time with the party before we were even born. And I can say that because me and Raylene are very young. <laughs> How has the Libertarian Party changed in, in the past 40 plus years? How has the ideas changed? How has the party itself developed or formed that you have seen in the last 40 years? Well, first of all, I want to clarify the situation just slightly. Uh, I was not among the earliest original people that helped David Nolan start the Libertarian Party. Mm -hmm. He organized the Libertarian Party in his living room there in 
in uh, Colorado and Denver in December. Mm -hmm. And I did not meet with David. We corresponded a couple of times, but I didn't meet with David until about April of 1972 mm -hmm. when I brought a few people with me up to Denver to meet with him and his wife Susan at that time. Right. And we, we, we discussed wanting to form a, a new party and we had further discussions. And finally he uh, decided uh, to ask me to chair the constitution bylaws and rules committee. That was a real mouthful mm -hmm. at the founding convention there in Denver in 1972 in June. Wow. And uh, so I undertook that task and that's what got me started in the libertarian party. So I was a joiner, you know, in the second wave, so to speak, mm -hmm. of people who came in to join with David. Okay, now then, as far as how things have changed, thankfully, from my point of view, the core beliefs uh, of the party that we established in 1972-74 period have not significantly been changed. Mm -hmm. That's why we have a statement of principles. Contrary to almost any other political party in the Western world, we have a statement of principles that is damn near uh, impossible to alter. Mm -hmm. Now, people could abolish it someday, you know, if they said, hey, this is all kind of moot because we just got rid of the state. Right. We don't need a statement of principles to challenge the cult of the omnipotent state because there is no omnipotent state anymore. <laughs> right. If I was in that situation, <laughs> I'd vote for abolish principles as well. Right. That's my fantasy. Yeah. I just I just got all googly eyed. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the party is doing pretty well now. Well, it's grown. It's definitely grown. It's the third largest party in the United States, which, you know, is good, but we're, I still feel like we're not getting the credit where credit is due. I think people ignore us and I think oh, people definitely. think we're crazy, but uh, I don't. I think we're awesome. I think the people in the party a lot of the people in the party are really inspiring, and it's really cool to see people out there really working and trying to spread the message of liberty out there. And it's a tough job. It's a tough job because a lot of people don't want to hear it. it. A lot of people just don't want to hear it. So speaking of that, Johnny, um, yeah. I, I do want to say I have been hearing people a buzz lately. This last year especially, we are hearing so much more from libertarians that are in the party and outside of the party about ballot access. You know, Mr. Robinson, I'm really excited that what you're trying to do, even if the LNC said not right now, I, I think that this is becoming something that could be a crux issue between that and fair debate access. Yep. Mm -hmm. Those both are, are kind of a big issues right now. Um, I was going to ask you about the dual scrolling paper ballot machine. Did you invent that? Well, yes, ma'am. Uh, <laughs> many, many years ago, I was a precinct election official here in Oklahoma City uh, back in the dark days when I was still a Republican. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, those are my dark days, too. Yeah. We were all, I think we're all Republicans at one point. They made me a precinct official. And those days we had those uh, big, enormous uh, steel, look like bank vault machines where people went in and pushed the levers to make their votes. And they put them in the school building, but they didn't want you to push them too far on their tile floor because damn things were so heavy, they might break the tile. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. That was, that was when I got started in, in, in thinking about the voting machines. Well, over the years, different ideas came and went, and I just got rid of things. But it occurred to me here about a few months ago that if you look at a ballot, generally many ballots are arranged in just a 
the printed in a column format mm-hmm. where you have the list of offices right. that are available in that election to be voted on. Let's say the left-hand column. And then there's a right-hand column where you have listed all the candidates for those offices with a lot of wasted space in between to make room for all the candidates for just a few offices. And then it occurred to me, well, you know, that's not the best way to arrange your logistics. Why don't you split the ballot in two? No matter how many names, you can put them on a scroll and you can scroll the names up and down to have a match up with the offices. And this means that there is no practical reason for limiting the number of candidates that can appear on the ballot. Because under the design that I've done, uh, you could have a list of candidates that was 500 feet long. Wow. That's not going to happen. No. When I was in the Air Force, I did a lot of work with teletype machines. Uh You could have a roll of teletype paper and scroll it up and back and forth and see what's on it. And that occurred to me that, well, you could do that with a ballot machine, too. All you need is an electrochem- uh, uh, electromechanical uh, machine to keep things synchronized between a list of offices on the left-hand side, which is more or less fixed data. That's not going to change. Well, it will from precinct to precinct. But for the voter in a given precinct, that's a fixed amount of data. And on the other side is the candidates. Wow. I am a massive advocate of the right of the voter to write in any candidate for any office that they please because, well, that's the way we did things for the first hundred years of the country. Wow. Until they monopolized the yeah. office in 1888. Are you doing a patent on this? Okay. I did talk with a patent attorney about this matter at some length, and he had some good questions for me and was uh, it showed a great deal of interest. But the fact of the matter is that the voting machine business in the United States is a virtual monopoly. Yep. And if you can't raise millions of dollars, there's no point in you trying to break in to that rather restricted voting machine market. Right. More cronyism. (laughs) Wow. So I decided that I'll just throw my design into the public domain. And, And basically, it just becomes a matter of being an illustration of why it's not necessary to have all these restrictions on the ballot because there is no mechanical or logical reason why the voter cannot have virtually unlimited choice when they go to vote. I love it. I think that's a great idea. Um, Has anyone thought about putting together a prototype and then making a video? Because I think that could go viral. It could. I would like to put together an animation of uh, of the ballot machine because it's going to be an all-paper ballot. See, when the voter goes in there, the little door is going to slide open, and they can go ahead and check off what candidate they want, or they can just write in the name of any candidate next to an office. And when they're finished, they just push a button, and the window closes. And then the, the, uh, the machine spins the scroll, and that more or less effectively shuffles the ballots so that the next ballot that comes up is not sequential. Mm-hmm. It's anonymized because it's randomized. Right. And then the next voter comes in, and they see a blank ballot, but the previous voter's ballot might be 50 feet down the scroll <laughs> in either direction. Right. There's no way, in retrospect, to connect any particular ballot to any particular sequence of voters. So it preserves the secret ballot anonymity without restricting the choice of the voter. And that was the whole purpose 
of trying to design a machine for that purpose. You do that right mr robinson really quick before we wrap up this segment sure uh is there somewhere we can learn more about ballot access is there a website that we can go to that actually gets some more information about this well i i recommend and defer in all instances to uh richard winger's ballot access news richard has i know him personally has amassed an enormous database of election information and election laws and he's tremendously knowledgeable about all the existing ballot laws and a great deal of the history of the ballot laws in the United States. If anybody wants one place to start, they need to go to Ballot Access News and look at some of of Richard's essays as well as just the uh, monthly data that comes in. Right. If if one wants a paper copy of uh, Ballot Access News, it's very inexpensive and easy to subscribe to and, and get a copy uh, every month. Right on. Anyway, so this is Blast Off with Johnny Rocket. I'm here with my Ray of Truth, Miss Raylene Lightheart. Thank you. And we're talking to Mr. D. Frank Robinson. Woo! Bam! Anyway, anyway so, so we're not done with you yet. We have Rocket Fire coming up, so if you could stick around. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Anyway, so this is Johnny Rocket. Check us out at blastoffshow.com. Rock and roll. It's time to shake up your podcast feed, folks, by subscribing to Lions of Liberty, the only libertarian variety show out there. Spend Mondays with me, Mark Clare, as I feature in-depth interviews with great names in the libertarian community and fun roundtable discussions. Electric Liberty Land with me, Brian McWilliams, every Wednesday, your weekly dose of comedy, culture, and liberty. And Felony Fridays with me, John Odermatt, where I expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at lionsofliberty.com. Inflammatory. Uncalled for. What about my pension? Outrageously offensive. Ladies and gentlemen, Johnny Rockets' two minute hate speech. Hate speech. Johnny Rockets. Cover your ears. This is Johnny Rocket's two-minute hate speech. Sometimes longer. Johnny Rocket's two-minute hate speech banned on Snapchat. The other day, I was scrolling through my Google News feed, and the headline read, The men behind hashtag thought audit have nothing better to do than report sex workers to the IRS. For those of you who have been living under an analog rock, allow me to bust out my dog-eared copy of the Urban Dictionary and define a few terms for you. Incels, or involuntary celibates, are a subgroup loosely affiliated with the men's rights movement that are the most fringe part of the backlash against third-wave feminism. These involuntary celibates are just men who, just as the name suggests, couldn't get laid in a woman's prison if they were armed with a bag of dope and keys to the gate. Pent up and pissed, they've taken all women, any woman, to task for perceived inequities in our culture. First, by coining the term thought, right? And it's an acronym for that hoe over there, T-H-O-T, in reference to an attractive, attention-grabbing woman who are way beyond their reach. Case in point, cam girls or women who share nude pics and videos for a price on social media sites like Snapchat and Instagram. And how do these pathetic beta males get their revenge? By sicking the state on these women by writing them out to the IRS for unreported income. Are you kidding me?
Was this because you were raised by government school teachers and you think the appropriate way to make things fair is to rat your peers out? You're a statist. The moment you report someone to the IRS, you, you are the aggressor. You are willing to use violence of the state to achieve your goals, which is beyond pathetic. These women are not hurting anyone, but reporting these women to the IRS, you set yourself up to be the beneficiary of the income the state stole from them. So I guess, men, you have suddenly found a way of making money just as quickly as the women. Is it Yes. Is it wrong? Yes. Is it ironic? Is all hell? Yes. So who's the welfare now? All right. All right. Guys, I get why it seems unfair. Where's this male privilege we keep hearing about? When girls and women can make a living just by taking their shirt off. It sounds like easy money, maybe a little unfair. I get it. Do women have it easier to make money than men on the internet, especially if they're attractive? Probably. What can a man do as easy as taking off one's clothes for money? I would say women should celebrate it while they can. That shit doesn't last forever. I also understand why women would be pissed because their tax-exempt status has suddenly and abruptly changed. But here's the thing. Life isn't fair. Free market capitalism means people make money where others will spend it. These girls are providing a product that people will pay for willingly and that people are asking for. It's nothing but free association. If you don't want to pay for nudes, then don't. Don't be a and try to ruin somebody to provide a service that there's a need for when no one's getting hurt. It's douche nozzles like you that are part of the problem, especially using the state to punish these free marketeers. Let's face it, I'd rather see a woman doing cam videos because it's safer than prostitution. And there's also nothing wrong with prostitution. Ruining things for other people is wrong. You're worse than the neighbor who calls the cops on you because your music is too loud. You're nothing but a tattletale For those of you who are seeking up to a 30% reward from the IRS for reporting them, you're beyond scum. You're stealing their money while using the arm of the state to reach your means. If you don't like something, don't buy it. The number one thing you need in order to seduce girls, whether you're in Timbuktu, Paris, or Manhattan, is confidence. And if you continue with hiding behind a keyboard, herein lays the problem. Guys, create your own value, just like these women have. Quit operating from a culture of victimhood and fix your problems instead of resorting to petty narc games. I just want to say thanks to all the incels who have publicly exposed themselves by turning in these women. At least we know who the are that would turn in and Frank for a dollar. is a children's media company for children's ages 0 through 7. Our stories teach the foundational principles that underlie libertarianism and relate them in a manner that even the youngest children can understand and enjoy. Little Libertarians was founded by attorney and libertarian activist Dory Goikman. We teach the basics of self-ownership, non-aggression, and property rights to babies, toddlers, and young kids. Use coupon code ROCKET, R-O-C-K-E-T, for 40% off of Little Libertarian products at www.littlelibertarians.com. Again, that's www.littlelibertarians.com.
off the journey rocket, and I'm here with my ray of truth, Miss Riley Lightheart. We're having a good time here. We're talking to Mr. D. Frank Robinson. What a cool story. Hearing about the, the Libertarian Party and its second wave or pretty much. I mean, I'm going to say, even though you claim that you weren't in the living room, the living room, <laughs> right? You, you still were like paramount in the formation of the ideas and the concepts and everything that the Libertarian Party is based upon. And I really think it's really interesting and it's cool to hear the history about this party that does have a pretty long history behind it. It, so it does. It's pretty He's cool. He's an OG. Yeah. An Origi- OG, like original, original gangsta. gangsta. That's right, he is. <laughs> anyway, so what we do here on the second segment, sir, it's, it's called Rocket Fire. Rocket what we do on Rocket Fire, 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 sir, is I'm going to ask you a series of 10 questions. These questions will be politically related, and if you can answer these questions between 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be awesome. Mr. Robinson, are you ready to play Rocket Fire? I'm ready. All right. Give it to me. All right. Question one. What are the core bylaws of the party, and why are they so important? I believe the core bylaw is the bylaw requiring the statement of principles for the party and the seven-eighths rule to amend that statement of principles. Without those two provisions of the bylaws, uh, the Libertarian Party would just basically be kind of like, uh, hey, whatever the most recent group of people got together and decided, and they could walk in which way they wanted to. But the the Libertarian Party has a core, which is completely unique to American political parties. Right on. Question two. Who do you think has been the most influential person in the Libertarian Party? Well, the obvious answer for me is David Nolan, because he he, he impressed me so much and offered me such a, a responsibility at the very beginning of the party. David Nolan started this thing, and his spirit still carries this party forward. Right on. Question three. Do you think the Libertarian Party blew the election in 2016? No. It doesn't matter in any given presidential election what the personality quirks or uh, uh, attractions, uh, characteristics of the candidates for president and vice president are as much as do they carry the message effectively. And I believe, as an addendum to that, that no one has surpassed... uh, Harry Brown in being able to present the libertarian message right. effectively. I'm with you on that. Well, a lot of the other candidates have done well, but Harry would be the one at the top of my list. So uh, we're not going to get another Harry Brown, maybe, but we could. Let's hope. Let's hope. Question four. What do you think the Libertarian Party keeps failing to gain approval and support in local and presidential elections? Does it come from a lack of recognition or something else, in your opinion, sir? Uh, well, basically, it's because all alternative parties in the United States have been ghettoized mm-hmm. uh, by ballot access laws. In other words, it's the same as a Jim Crow law. Hey, you people are second-class people, and you need to be able to do something extra in order for you to come on and get on our ballot. Mm-hmm. Because, hey, we're the, we're the real Puritan Americans, and we're the only ones that really own this country. And, and you're just here because, you know... Uh, you can help us with our sham of having a democracy. So I think that because ballot access laws turn all alternative parties, put them in a political ghetto, that that, and that taints all the uh, perceptions of all the voters because they think, oh, yeah, third party, you know, spoiler, wasted vote, right. ghetto dwellers. We, we can't do anything with those people. They're just disreputable. Right. It's a big smear. I'm with you. That's a good comparison. 
to the Jim Crow laws. We're second-class citizens unless we are Republicans and Democrats. Right on. Question five. What issues have always been a gray area with the libertarians since the inception of the party? Like abortion. Has that always been an issue? Yes, it's, and it's always been one that one can go either way. And I don't claim to have the philosophical wisdom to try to adjudicate an answer to that. I have a personal opinion. Right. As a preference. But as many old, my opinion probably wouldn't affect anyone else anyway. Mm-hmm. And I believe this for the libertarian women to work this out among themselves, what they think is the best libertarian position on abortion. Mm-hmm. And the men are just going to have to live and learn. <laughs> I love it. All right, question six. Is the Second Amendment about opposing government tyranny? Well, of course. <laughs> is that your final answer? <laughs> okay. Yes. Got it. Yes. All right. Question seven. Do you think women are really a scarcity in the Libertarian Party? Has it always been that way, and do other parties face the same problem? I don't know that having some kind of a uh, quota uh, idea for how many women should be uh, active in the Libertarian Party mm-hmm. uh, is that important. Women who have the abilities and the inclination and want to be active in the Libertarian Party are not going to have any difficult finding acceptance from their male peers, in my opinion. Right. Now, it's a question of do those women want to be somewhat rebellious feminists and become associated with the ghetto party? I don't know. Right on. Question eight. Do you think libertarianism will actually get a test in your lifetime, or do you think... Things will get worse before they get better. I'm hoping things do not get worse because the danger of sliding into a total fascist state is too risky if things turn really bad. Things are going to get bad from time to time. I mean, the 2007 financial meltdown was not the worst that it can be in in these days. It can get worse and it probably will. But whether or not it would cause the people's willingness to try to be orderly with one another and just embrace, you know, a man on a white horse. I don't want to see that. I would rather libertarians persevere and just wear the state down. Right on. Okay, question nine. What was Ayn Rand's view of the libertarian movement and what was her view on the libertarian party? Well, in my early days as a youngster in my 19, in my late teens and 20s, uh, I fancied myself as being an objectivist. I read all Ayn Rand's books. Mm-hmm. I read what she published. I read her newsletters and her little green uh, magazines. And I was pretty much of a true believer, except I kept having questions that I couldn't find her giving me answers to. And over time, I kind of drifted away from Ayn Rand's objectivist philosophy. And by the time I came into the Libertarian Party, I feel like I was a recovering objectivist. I was still a limited government <laughs> minarchist person, uh-huh. as I think Dave was, but, but we no longer, you know, had to go run Reed Atlas Shrugged to figure out if we were thinking for ourselves because Ayn Rand hadn't written it yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think uh, Ayn Rand was worthwhile, and she opened up many doors, many minds for many people, and many of them graduated from her elementary school into more advanced libertarian thinking. Right on. Question 10. Has there always been party infighting since the beginning, since the inception? Uh, I believe whenever you have two humans, you're going to have differences of opinion. Mm -hmm. I don't find anything unnatural or alarming about that. 
most of the time people will negotiate something that they can tolerate mm -hmm. between themselves, even though they may continue to have a, a personal disagreement. You know, they think, oh, well, that guy's wrong, but, you know, he's entitled to his opinion and we can work together on this other thing. So I'm, I'm not one of these people who wrings their hands over infighting. I think that's the normal course of human affairs. That's why we have a market. That's why we have 10,000 brands of different products is because you don't say that, well, uh, people go to the grocery store and they're infighting over what they take off the shelf. <laughs> ah, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. All right, and the bonus question, do Mexicans ever say those damn jobs in America keep stealing our Mexicans? <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I don't have any real close uh, uh, Mexican friends anymore. I have had a few in the past, uh -huh. but it doesn't matter whether I have close Mexican friends or not. I like to see new people coming into this country uh, no matter what. And I have a very low opinion of these imaginary boundaries made up by imaginary states to serve the interest of just a few people, mostly on the East and West Coast. That's right. I love it. Anyways, so let's rock and fire. Give it up. Give it up for Mr. D. Frank Robinson. Bam. Yeah. Bam. Good Thank job. You. Thank you. Thank you. Great job. That was really fun to listen to. <laughs> Ugh. Tell everyone to vote for me for Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. That's right. Anyway, so we're not done with you yet, sir, because we have to take a quick commercial break. But anyway, so this is Johnny Rocket, and I'm here with my Ray of Truth, Miss Raylene Lightheart, and we're talking to Mr. D. Frank Robinson. So stick around. We'll be right back. Rock and roll. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. Are you tired of banging your head against the proverbial wall of politics and getting nowhere toward actually making your life more free? Are you tired of interview podcasts that have the same guests as every other libertarian interview podcast out there? Are you tired of hearing the same news stories that you can hear on the mainstream media? Then you need to listen to The Lava Flow, where we don't do politics and we don't do the major stories that exist only to divide you. We talk about news that affects you and your freedom, and we work to find solutions that can actually help you to be more free. LAVA stands for Libertarian, Anarcho-Capitalist, Voluntarist, and Agorist. And if you consider yourself to be in any of those categories, all of those categories, or just interested in learning about them, then the LAVA Flow podcast is for you. Check us out at thelavaflow.com. The LAVA Flow podcast, channeling the flow of information to the Libertarian, Anarcho-Capitalist, Voluntarist, and Agorist community. Thelavaflow.com.
Bam. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here on the show. Rocket Fire turned out great. Great answers. Great answers to some of those challenging questions. So, Raylene, take it away. So, I was going to ask you about the Dallas Accord. It's very popular story. Uh, If you're in the party, you start to learn about 1974 and what the Dallas Accord is and what happened. And I was wondering if we could hear your take on it and what happened when the Statement of Principles was created and adopted. Can you go ahead and tell us that story? Okay, yes, ma'am. At the 1974 Dallas Convention, uh, my function at that time was to be the national parliamentarian. I went out and got a professional assistant that I could consult with since I regard myself and still do as as an amateur parliamentarian. Mm -hmm. Now, when the issue of these modification amendments to the statement of principles came up, there was a lot of negotiating going on that I was not involved with because of my official duties and also wanting to keep up with the Oklahoma delegation. And what got worked out, though, is basically this. The Libertarian Party would be neutral on the issue of whether or not the end goal of the party was a minimalist state or no state at all. So minarchy and anarchy. So there were two factions of Libertarians at the time? Yes, and the minarchists were by far in the majority. Mm -hmm. Now as a sidebar, when we adopted the 7-8 rule in Denver, which I authored, Mm -hmm. I gave it to David and kind of took him by surprise. And uh, in my draft of the rule, there would be a one-year or two-year wait for the next convention whenever that statement of principles could be amended by a three-fourths vote convention. David read that over and he says, no, I think we need to make that a two-thirds vote. Okay, David. Uh And when we got to Dallas, it was his wisdom to make it a two-thirds vote instead of my notion of a three-fourths vote that made the Dallas Accord possible because there were enough of the anarchy people there to prevent a vote that would have been stopped. In other words, if it had been three-fourths vote, they would not have been able to get to change it. So by a two-thirds vote, the minarchists accepted the anarchist position. Wow. And that's why we have the Dallas Accord. Now, of course, the party has not changed the statement of principles since 1974. Mm-hmm. I don't anticipate they ever will. Wow, that is crazy. So let's talk about some recent things that are going on with the Libertarian Party. Do you think Gary Johnson's, you know, he was talking about when he was running, his concept of being socially liberal and fiscally conservative. Do you think that's an accurate depiction of what libertarianism is in itself? And is it good that we depicted libertarianism in that light? I think for uh, for those voters with a sixth grade reading level, that's probably about right. <laughs> However, I think the Libertarian Party needs to be appealing to those voters with a little more sophistication. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I don't I think we need to respect the intelligence of those voters that we really need to appeal to who will be future uh, opinion leaders and influencers and give them a more intelligent arguments for why uh, they should vote libertarian. I'm with you. So here's another thing that's happening here in Washington. And we, we just kind of had this situation come up. Do you think it's okay for libertarian candidates to advocate for more government, right? Even if that candidate is better than any of the other candidates, right? Is principle more important than votes? Good question. The votes will mean nothing. The votes will turn on you if you lie to them, if you deceive them, if you say, hey, I'm all for black, but really when I get up there and start voting in Congress, I'm going to be voting red. Uh, 
you can't fool the people all the time. Uh, even if Abraham Lincoln made that statement attributed to him, I just don't believe there's a maximum to that that should be followed. Don't try to fool all the people all the time. No, but I, I honestly think this candidate wanted to appeal to a certain voting demographic. And by doing so, he wanted to instill more government into Seattle. That was the issue we were having, that he wanted to support restrictions on weapons and guns. And to me, that's unlibertarian. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, let me let me expand on this, Johnny, if you yeah, don't mind, real ahead. quick, Mr. Robinson. What is our duty? If we're in a party, we're supposed to be bound together by the statement of principles. And sometimes something isn't really our topic. Like, we don't really care about... We're, we're not going to focus our energy if we're a candidate on removing certain parts of government as much as others because we all have our passion projects. But if a libertarian candidate advocates for the initiation of aggression or more state force, is it our duty as party members? Because we're in an actual party. So at what point are we allowed to say, sit down, apologize to the libertarians that you're supposed to be representing and, and, and educating the public about? Or do we have to keep our mouth shut and sit down and and let them run their campaign however we want without ever asking them to to change it. What, what's our duty as other party members when a candidate does that? Well, my recollection is when, back in the days when I was involved in Republican Party uh, election campaigns and, and, and uh, helped to, in fact, eventually get a Republican congressman elected in the district here in Oklahoma, uh, Mickey Edwards. We used to, back in those days, before social media, you'd go and you'd talk privately. Mm-hmm. And then two or three of you people would go and talk privately. And you would talk to the candidate, and then you'd try to bring them around to, mm-hmm. you know, your position. Nowadays, everybody immediately jumps out and gets their placards out on social media. Mm-hmm. And that makes up for a candidate to, you know, say, oh, well, uh, yeah, I guess I need to reconsider. Because that's being seen as a sign of weakness. Unfortunately, the reality is that people do not have the opportunity to talk with each other one-on-one, face-to-face as much as we used to. And so the social media confrontation is the only venue that's left open to us. And that does cause people to want to dig in their heels. Nevertheless, when somebody goes ahead and starts advocating violating the NAP, I'll probably be one of the people leading the pitchforks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right on. Cool. So do you believe in the 80-20 rule where if a candidate agrees with you 80% of the time, then they're worth supporting? Is that something that you talk about or, or, or agree to? Uh, I think that's perfectly good for the Democrats and Republicans, but it's not good enough for libertarians. Fantastic. I think it's more like a, the ratio ought to be about 98 to 2. <laughs> I agree. I love it. I am too. <laughs> Well, that 2%, I mean, it could be where we want to focus in. I mean, that's what I've been trying to tell people. Like, I don't think when, you know, we, we use that 80-20 thing, I don't think it means like we need to give up. 80, we're 80% libertarian and 20% statist. I mean, that's not really what I think that is applicable to because we've talked about this. It means that the 20% could mean that I think that we should go after the Federal Reserve. And this person might agree that, yeah, it's a good idea. But the Department of Education is the next thing we should go after instead of the Federal Reserve. So that's where I think that comes into play. Not necessarily, I'm willing to compromise 20% of my principles to get elected. That's where I yeah. think. Yeah, libertarians fight a lot because we do have our principles. And so that, and and like you were talking about from the very beginning, it's always been groups of people arguing about how much government we want to get rid of, which I'm, a f- just let's just get rid of it. Let's just work together to get rid of it. 
right? I'm with you. Well, here's another thing. Everything in the Libertarian Party platform, each plank is not exactly equal. Everybody weighs each of those planks in a relative hierarchy of how important it is to them. You know, it's subjective value. Somebody can, can disagree on some topic that maybe 90% of libertarians think of less the least important plank in the whole platform. Mm-hmm. And if you disagree on it, okay, well, that's okay. Right. But if you disagree on something that is regarded as being fundamental, like it's about 50% of the platform, like monetary issues and things like that, Right. Well, then that's a, it's an entirely different situation. But there's plenty of room for diversity of opinion within the Libertarian Party platform. And that's why I consider myself uh, platform-wise probably only about a 98% Libertarian. Right on. That's fair. Right on, man. After the ballot access laws are all taken care of, and you're in charge right now as a, a Libertarian representative of ours, what is the first thing you would get rid of? in our government. My wish list on that first thing has has varied for a long, long time, but this is probably going to put me on the extreme fringe. I would start demolishing the Pentagon. Nice. And the CIA and the National Security Establishment. Yeah. That's where I would go first, even before the bankers and all these other things. And the welfare state can wither away on its own, but you've got to attack the military-industrial complex that controls so much of the economy of this country. And, and so, to me, that's the keystone of state power, is, is their idea is that we can make war whenever we want and extract profits yeah. on war for that. So I'm a very extreme anti-war libertarian. That's, that's, that's a great point. That's a great point. Because if they don't have the military, then they really have no, they have no arm. We're disarming them. And all those, all the financial stuff, right? Yes. That's a good point. I, you know, I never even thought about it like that, but that makes sense. I really kind of, I'm kind of put it in a new light for that. Uh, yeah, that's kind of interesting because I'm, I'm like a Department of Education guy. Like, that's my thing. The Fed is really like number two, but I think I'm really for the Department of Education. We're going to keep raising socialists, and that's the thing I'm really afraid of. But even at state level, we would have them, but the Department of Education but didn't come in until the 1981. Is that right? Really? Hey, the Department of Education is just an arm of the Pentagon. It's there to <laughs> yeah. indoctrinate people to go into the military. That's true. Yeah. You're not, they recruit at school. They do. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. I always give Kim about this, but I say I'm already against the next war. And as she had this flyer, and I, but I am, I already am because you know what? There has not been a war that's justified. And the only one, like, you know, we all kind of like the whole revolutionary war. That's a pretty sexy story. You know, like it is. a bunch of, bunch my of, favorite. you know, yeah. You know, I got a bunch of thugs hanging around and we're like, we're gonna- I like that they were ducking and rolling and hiding in trees and being little guerrilla warfare. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it started. We created yeah. guerrilla warfare. That's the only war I thought was pretty cool. But I mean, the rest, you know, are questionable. But uh, I'll tell you what, Mr. Robinson, thank you so much for being here. But we're we're going to wrap this show up. So, Raylene, prepare for landing. Roger that, Johnny. Seatbelts and shoulder harnesses. Your body, your choice. Landing gear and downward expanders. NAP initiated. Anti-state superchargers. Defragged and woke. Landing lights and guest websites. Mr. D. Frank Robinson, give us your dot coms or websites. Or Facebook. Or Facebook. Yes, D. Frank Robinson at Facebook. Okay. That's where we met. And we also, Ballot Access News. That's another site that we should check out. What a soft landing. That's nice. See, you like what we did there? We just went like, boom. We went, boom. 
That's right. All right. Anyways, so this is Johnny Rocket here at Blast Off. And if you guys like the conversation we're having with Mr. Robinson, please subscribe to our Patreon for only a dollar an episode. And you can hear the rest of this interview with the questions our listeners want him to answer. So, anyways, so this is Johnny Rocket, always launching ideas. And I'm here with Raylene Lightheart. We'll see you next week. Rock and roll.